What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question, we'd love to uh, answer that question about the Catholic faith. Here we are, and here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Lagos, which I believe is in um, Nigeria, is it in Nigeria, Lagos? I'm not, I'm not going out on a limb here with you, Tom. <laughs> well, no matter where you're listening, you can uh, call us at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always uh, send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is normally our phone screener. However, um, uh, Rich is handling things. Rich Jesse is in handling that uh, today. And uh, he's also handling uh, social media. So if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very well. And Lagos is in Nigeria. All right. Or is it? Legos. I'm not sure, but I've got a very interesting uh, question here to lead off. This is an email from Michelle. Dear Dr. Andrews, I am a fundamentalist Protestant struggling on the road toward Catholicism. One of the reasons I am not Catholic is that I am hanging on to my belief in a believer's baptism. I have heard and read several Catholic apologists explaining the church's position, but I remain unconvinced. My question to you is, can I still become Catholic if I don't fully agree with infant baptism? I'm single and past the childbearing years, so whether to have my own children baptized isn't a decision I'll ever have to make. Please advise. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So one thing that you might be missing about Catholics is that Catholics also believe in believer's baptism in the sense that baptism is essentially allied to the virtue of faith, and faith is necessary for its fruitful reception. Um, Now, here's where we would differ with you a little bit from the Baptist conception of that, is that faith can be more or less explicit. Faith can be more or less explicit. Um, And faith can be vicariously professed. And so... Um, you know, the Baptist typically thinks of faith as uh, a kind of, you know, fully explicit, conscious embrace of the doctrines of the Word of God and committing oneself to Jesus, you know, in a very personal, conscious act. Okay. And we that's a very good thing to do, and Catholics would say, yes, I mean, have at it. Go commit yourself to Christ and have a dunk. You know, that's fine. we got no problems with that. But, um, but you know, but a person can have—faith for a Catholic is—it's is, not just a— a set of intellectual propositions to which I assent, although it can include that, but it's also a virtue that inheres in the will. It's the disposition to believe what God has revealed. And so one can have what's called implicit faith. Now, I would contend, 
uh, you might bristle with that idea. A lot of Baptists might, but I would uh, I would contend that every Baptist already has an idea of implicit faith that he may not he or she may not recognize. And here here's what it is. I remember when my dad was growing up, he was a Southern Baptist, and uh, you know he would have questions about the faith, and sometimes they wouldn't be answered, and he'd be frustrated, and he would go to his parents. And he would say, uh, well, how do you make sense of this? And how do you make sense of that? And, and the, the answer that he got back was, well, have you read the whole Bible? <laughs> and he would say, well, no, I haven't read the whole Bible. And they said, well, go read the whole Bible, and then you understand. Now, I don't think that was necessarily good advice. Mm. What that meant was, I have no idea how to answer your question, but I'm hoping that if you read the whole Bible, you'll stop <laughs> asking me. You know? but, but what was implied there was, you know, the Baptist has a disposition. I may not have read the whole Bible, but I'm already pre-committed to anything it has to say. Yeah. So maybe I've never read the book of Hosea, but when I get around to reading Hosea, I'm going to believe it. Doggone it, because God wrote it. There okay? you go. That's implicit faith. Yes. You, you already—I'm going to believe when I learn what it is I'm supposed to believe, right? Well, that's also faith, and a Catholic can have a faith that is entirely implicit, right? The disposition, the, that, that formation in the will to accept what God has revealed as I learn it. And so an infant can have that. An infant can have a faith that's totally implicit. And faith being a gift, being a gift, something that God infuses into us, um, in the will as that disposition, is something that an infant could have. And, and uh, a godparent can profess the faith vicariously for that child, who can then grow up in the faith and have that faith become more and more explicit. So we do believe in believer's baptism, but have a, maybe a more robust concept of what belief might entail. Now, can you become Catholic if you, if you um, have a problem with the Church's teaching? There's nothing wrong with having a problem, all right? Uh, but to be Catholic is to say that at some level you believe what the church declares to have been revealed by God. So if the church says believers baptism, excuse me, the baptism of infants is appropriate, you might say, I don't understand it. It it rubs me the wrong way. It it really grates against my, you know, Baptist nerves. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me, <laughs> but I'm gonna grit my teeth and say okay. Mm. That's perfectly acceptable. To say the church is fundamentally wrong and I am right, well, then you're not accepting a Catholic dogma and that'd be problematic. Okay. And Michelle, thanks so much for your email. A quick one from Ted. The answer may not be too quick. Why do Catholics follow all those rules if Jesus came to abolish the law? Oh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, first of all, I wish Catholics followed a lot more of them. Right? <laughs> Catholics aren't so good at following rules, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, uh, secondly, there aren't really all that many rules that Catholics have to follow. Um, so, really, pretty much the, the kind of... Uh, bedrock sine qua non rules of the Catholic faith are go to Mass. Go to Mass yes. when you're supposed to on, yes. on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. Um, confess your sins once a year. Uh, uh, support the temporal needs of the Church, you know, give to the Church, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and and those are moral principles that would exist even if there weren't an explicit rule stating them. Like, I mean, what would it mean to join the people of God, the Christian community, with the intent to never participate in formal worship. Uh-huh. You know, what would it mean to accept the Church's teaching on, uh, say, uh, the divine origin of confession if you purpose to never take advantage of the sacrament, right? So it's just the Church telling you to eat your vegetables, basically. Um, but let's come back to the question about Christ abolishing the law after the break. That sounds like a good idea, so uh, sit tight there, Ted. We'll continue your email. Hey, the phone lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986.
It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment. I want to finish up that question that we began before the break. That was from Ted. And Ted's original question was, why do Catholics follow all those rules if Jesus came to abolish the law? Yeah, thanks. So the first thing I started to say was we really don't follow that many. I mean, the, the, the precepts of the Church are, are to go to Mass, um, to uh, fast on the days of fasting and absence, and there's only a couple of those in the Church's calendar, uh, support the temporal needs of the Church, go to confession once a year, and receive Holy Communion once a year. And th- those are all things that you should be doing even in the absence of a commandment, mm. right? So why would you want to be Catholic if you weren't going to, say, you know, uh, give give for the poor and the care of the church if you didn't want to receive communion, if you didn't want to go to confession, um, you know, if you didn't want to uh, endorse uh, or in, in embrace ascetical practices to grow in your detachment from the pleasures of the flesh. I mean, those kinds of things as disciplines of Christian life, just you just ought to do them, and the church commanding them is sort of like just saying, take your vegetables. And that's it. That's really, that's really not that many things you have to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, now the question about, about abolishing the law— Christ uh, definitely uh, abolished the Mosaic Code as the marker of identity as a member of the covenant people of God. So if you want to be marked out as belonging to God and his plan of salvation, you don't have to circumcise yourself or avoid eating pork or shellfish. That sort of thing is no longer relevant for the life of the Christian faithful. And the su- the kind of uh, uh, the sum and substance of the law boils down to the twin commands to love God and love neighbor. And Christ definitely did not abolish those. It's still obligatory for Christians to love God and love neighbor. In fact, that is what salvation means. It means the transformation of our character such that we can love God and love neighbor. But that that expresses itself in in behaviors and, uh, and a certain corporate identity, which includes, among other things, the celebration of the sacraments and the life of charity manifest in, in, um, in uh, giving alms. And those, in fact, are the very things that are commanded in the precepts of the Church. All right, very good. And uh, thank you so much for your email. Uh, get to the phones in just a moment. You know, we're just really, here it is, the 1st of February. We're only 13 days away from the beginning of Lent. Can you believe it? Ash Wednesday, of course, this year coming up on February 14th. You can grow closer to the Lord this Lent. Each and every Lent is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to reflect, to pray, becoming detached from the things of the world, which are very easy to fall into. Well, our very own Father Joseph has prepared a series of Lenten meditations to guide you during this solemn season. Sign up today. It's absolutely free. Go to EWTN.com, Catholicism, Seasons and Feast Days. That would be EWTN.com slash Catholicism slash Seasons and Feast Days. Do check that out. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Susan in Miami, listening on YouTube. Hello, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Um, I have a quick question. Um, during the Apostles' Creed during Mass, they mentioned was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I think it was that certain part where everyone bows down. And, and like, I'd like to know why. Like, I will, you know, like, I know it's about yeah. the Mother Queen of Heaven. And yeah, sure. Thanks. So we, we, we make a bow at the mention of the Incarnation. 
um, that he was incarnate of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so it's the mystery. It's we're bowing out of reverence for the mystery of the incarnation. It is the most astonishing thing that should strike awe and reverence into the soul that the God who made the universe in whom we live and move and have our being would condescend to take on human flesh and share our nature and die and rise again for the sake of our redemption. I mean, think about that in comparison to, say, you know, winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> There's no comparison that God, that, that, the, that God became flesh for our redemption. What It's more astonishing than the fact of the creation. It is. It's amazing. It's beyond amazing. There's this, we're, we're dumbstruck in awe at this condescension and this love on God's part, and therefore we bow out of reverence. Sure. Is that helpful for you, Susan? Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Andrew. Appreciate that, and thank you for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Maria. Do Catholics worship statues? When I visited a Catholic church, I saw people praying in front of statues and sometimes even kneeling. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. The answer is no, we do not worship statues uh, any more than uh, Americans who visit, say, the um, uh, you know the Vietnam Memorial in Washington oh, yeah. are, are, are worshiping a wall of names. Um, or any more than if you go visit the Lincoln Memorial... You are worshiping either the memorial itself or the person of Abraham Lincoln. No, we're not. Um, those kinds of things are there to uh, uh, as aids to memory and hopefully to evoke reverence and respect in, uh, in the minds and hearts of the, of the observer. And that is exactly the way in which we use sacred art. Sacred art is there to be an aid to uh, the contemplation of mysteries, and if I see an image of a saint in front of me, then it calls to mind maybe something about that saint's personal history or character. And having that tangible point of reference is, uh, is, is there merely as a kind of mnemonic device, as an aid to, to prayer and meditation. Right. So that's, uh, that's the purpose of it. That's what it's all about. Thanks so much uh, for your email, Maria. It's uh, called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. The lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. Uh, here's, uh, this is right in your wheelhouse, David, from Jacob. I want to read more of St. Thomas Aquinas's writings but I'm not sure I'm ready to take on the entire Summa. What book or source would be a good source to begin my study of St. Thomas? Oh, great question. Really appreciate that. I really think a great place to begin is the book Aquinas uh, uh, by Edward Fazer, F-E-S-E-R. It's a great introduction to Thomas's philosophy. Um, but there are lots of one-volume intros to St. Thomas, and any one of them would be good. Joseph Pieper uh, P-I-E-P-E-R, a uh, German philosopher from earlier in the century, last century, uh, has one on just like the introduction to Thomas Aquinas or Thomas Aquinas. But I mean, honest, if you if you search in the Internet for intros to Thomas Aquinas, you'll be deluged with just a tidal wave of introductions. But I, honestly, I would start with Phaser because what he's going to do is specifically give you an introduction into the, uh, into the philosophy and the philosophical vocabulary. And the place where people get hung up on Thomas 
is that he uses words with a technical sense uh-huh. and words that you would that you already know from common English, but you might know them with a slightly different sense. And, mm. and, and so, we're, you know, words like substance and accident and form, for example, mean one thing in colloquial English. They mean another thing in philosophy. And if you sure. don't if you don't get that straight, you'll 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 misunderstand Thomas. So he's going to lay out that kind of terminology for you in a way that makes Thomas readable. Edward Faser, F-E-S-E-R, isn't it? That's the one. All right. There you go. And uh, thanks so much for your email, Jacob. You know, for over 40 years, EWTN has been praying with and for people throughout the world. Well, today, we want to pray for anything that weighs on your heart, such as family members, health, or finances. It is our honor to pray for you. Called to communion here on EWTN, Emily sent us this email. Currently, I'm suffering with a chronic illness. I have a cousin who, at family gatherings, keeps telling me that if I believe in Jesus, suffering will go away and I will be healed. Well, I tried to follow her advice, but still, no healing has come. How much do I have to believe in Jesus before he heals me? Will becoming Catholic result in my miraculous healing because I will have shown God that I really believe in him? Thank you. I really appreciate the question, and I'm very sorry for your chronic illness, and I'm just as sorry that you were given such bad counsel. Yeah. And I'm aware of this teaching. It's a common teaching in in Protestant Pentecostalism, and I regard it as one of the most cruel theologies ever invented uh, by the mind of man, because what it does, people are already suffering enough physically in the world— but then when you heap upon them guilt and tell them that it's your fault that you're suffering, and the only reason you're suffering is that you haven't been able to muster sufficient faith, and once you've crossed that faith threshold, then you'll be miraculously healed, it sets people up for this, this crushing burden of guilt and tremendous, tremendous disappointment. And so it, 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 if your physical suffering weren't enough, now you have to bear this unbearable psychological burden. It's worse than the health and wealth gospel. Oh, it's it, well, it is the health and wealth gospel. It's the, it's the pernicious underbelly of the health and wealth. It's the flip side of the health and wealth. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you believe you'll be healthy and rich, and if you're poor and suffering, that's your fault. Yeah. Oh, what a terrible, Ugh. terrible doctrine. I, I remember I, I knew a woman who was uh, diabetic, and she was, you know, going blind, had lost her feet, and was in really bad shape. And she used to just sit in her wheelchair and cry and cry and cry that she didn't have enough faith for God to heal her. And to, to me, there's so many reasons this is just an atrocious doctrine, not the least of which is it makes God into a kind of a tyrant. Yeah. I mean, it's as if, as if God were sitting up on his throne and <clears throat> sitting there leering at you going, not quite enough, push a little bit harder, not quite enough, you know. Also, it makes faith into a very intangible quantity, but something that seems to be measured by some kind of emotional intensity. And, uh, you know, I I sojourned very, very briefly in this world of Pentecostalism in my early 20s. And uh, and I I was familiar with the way they talked about faith. And it seemed to to me nothing so much as a kind of uh, exuberant enthusiasm that you were supposed to muster through vigorous effort. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, kind of almost almost a sort of athletic performance. Um, and, uh, And I found that doctrine of faith, that view of faith, to be thoroughly exhausting. And it also required me to dispense with reason, right? I mean, because one of the ways that it manifests itself is they'll tell you, well, you know, believe that you're already healed or that God wills to heal you and just keep telling yourself that over and over again. So you're kind of like the little engine that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Yeah. And, well, you know, I'm sitting here suffering, but oh, I can't think about that. You know, So it forces you to 
get your mind out of reality. And that can't be good. I mean, virtue is a conformity to reality, right? It's, sure. it's dealing with life on its own terms and having the fortitude and the temperance and justice and prudence to handle that, right? So that's really, really harmful. And, of course, there's nothing in Scripture that, or to sacred tradition that would suggest that that's the same way to handle suffering. On the contrary, on the contrary, the biblical view is that suffering is an occasion for us to be more closely united to Jesus. And some of those who God loves the most and who are closest to him are those that have suffered the most. Yeah. And, uh, and the suffering is the path to holiness. We detach ourselves from our creature comforts and from our expectations and, and, and come to lean on God alone and recognize that the ulti- ultimately God is enough. And, uh, and things that we thought we needed to be happy, we, we find out we don't need to be happy and we find our happiness in other things. And, and, and suffering typically, you heard the expression, either makes you better or bitter. And that's true. Yeah. You know, it can be quite perfecting of the soul, and, and that's ultimately what we're concerned about is the union with the will with God and charity and, and not, you know, my ability to muster some um, some emotional athleticism and to deny the obvious and then burden myself with this this uh, this mountain of guilt. Yeah. Emily, you will certainly be in our continuing prayers. Thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Caleb in Cortland, New York. Caleb says, the angels who fell made an irrevocable choice, so they're lost forever. So, can one of the angels who never fell, such as Gabriel, hypothetically choose to join the fallen angels? Or was there some event in salvation history where the good angels made the irrevocable choice to remain in God's friendship? Thanks, Caleb. Thanks. Really appreciate the question. Uh, your your second supposition is the correct one, uh. that the, the righteous angels were confirmed in holiness, confirmed in sanctifying grace, and admitted immediately to the beatific vision. See, the fall of the angels took place when none of the angels had had the vision of God. They were all created in grace, like Adam and Eve were created in grace, but they didn't have the beatific vision any more than Adam and Eve had the beatific vision. Mm -hmm. But the angels that fell were immediately condemned. The angels that obeyed were immediately admitted to the beatific vision. And for someone who has the vision of God, it is literally impossible. It is impossible to choose something else. Um, This is a trivial example, but imagine your absolute favorite food in all the world. And, uh, you know, that's sitting in front of your plate and you're and you're starving to death. And, <laughs> and you know, someone offers you that. And the alternative would be like, you know, what what came out of the disposal? Ugh. I mean, like y- you can't make yourself desire that which is intrinsically repulsive to you. Right. Yeah. And you can't make yourself not desire that which is ultimately fulfilling. And once that's been presented immediately to the soul, you know, God, the fulfillment of all desire, the source of everything good, true and beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's literally impossible to tear the soul away from that. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks for your uh, email today. And here's one from Scott in Houston. Dr. Anders, your knowledge of church history is mind-boggling. I'm looking for a book on church history, but not something that's steeped in theology or philosophy. I have ADD, and if I read something heady, I don't retain much. I'm looking for something that's like a a real page-turner, something that reads like a novel. Is there such a book? Um, Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's lots and lots of church histories. The, uh, the the Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart has a one-volume history of Christianity called The Story of Christianity. And, of course, it's going to be written from an Eastern Orthodox angle, and yeah. it's not going to be totally sympathetic to the Catholics. But mm. it jumps to my mind as a, like a readable one-volume sort of novel-like treatment. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, the—what the, um, uh, is his name? Um, 
Is it? Oh gosh, it's gone out of my head. <laughs> um, History of the Catholic Church by Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Oh sure. Yeah, Hitchcock. That's a Catholic uh, rendering of the story. Mm-hmm. That's also kind of an easy read and and uh, not overly theological. So there's a two for you right there. There you go, Scott. Appreciate your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, open phones for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we'd love to talk with you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for the Thursday edition of Call to Communion. It's called the Communion here on EWTN. Live, uh, live, lines are available for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Is there one little thing in your mind, maybe it's one big thing, that makes you say, mm, I don't know about this. Let's talk about that. 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, KSHF 96.7 FM in Espanola, New Mexico, celebrating nine years with us this week. Fantastic. Congratulations to Larry Martinez and his great team at St. Joseph Manayet Radio from your friends here at EWTN. All right, let's go to uh, Hannah. Uh, listening on AM 1260, The Rock, in the Cleveland area. Hannah, what's on your mind today? Oh, hello, Dr. Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, I was um, confronted with um, that during the Gospel at Mass, of course we stand, because it's the Word of God. Well, so is the first reading during the Mass, the second reading on Sundays, how is that distinguished? How, that's also the Word of God. It's also from the Bible. Um, but we stand for the Gospel alone. What about the first and second readings? Sure. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So you're absolutely right that all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the Word of God. But we stand during the Gospels specifically because the four Gospels have a position of prominence within the Bible and within the life of the Catholic Church because they are the recordings of the words of the incarnate Lord, right? So there's, there is something unique about the incarnation and the person of Jesus Christ. He is the, the linchpin, the, uh, the key to the interpretation of the rest of the Bible. And of course, the Christian life is nothing uh, other than uh, the obedience to and imitation of the life and teachings of Jesus. So because of the reverence we have for the incarnation, uh, the singular importance of the historical life of, of Jesus of Nazareth um, and his centrality to the Catholic faith. That's why we stand specifically during the reading of the Gospels. Is that helpful for you, Hannah? Oh, well, yes. Yes. Um, the Very point was then we should also stand for the other uh, readings, too. But as you said, because of the prominence of the um, incarnate Word of God himself, Exactly, exactly. It's the centrality of the person of Jesus that's being acknowledged. Appreciate your call from Cleveland, Hannah. Appreciate that, and thank you so much for it. Here's an email now from uh, Jane who says, Dear Dr. Anders, sometimes at Mass during the intercessory prayer of the faithful, people in the pews say their particular intentions out loud, and we're all expected, of course, to make the response, Lord, hear our prayer. 
What prevents a petitioner from making an inappropriate petition that we should not affirm with our response? For example, a petition that voters would vote a certain way in an election. Now, I haven't seen this happen, but I don't see what would prevent it. Um, so nothing prevents it. And um, I'll tell you the funniest story I ever heard about the prayer of the faithful and a spontaneous, you know, re- remark uh-huh. came from Catholic Answers Jimmy Aiken, and and you know there's a during the homily at this particular mass where uh-huh. Mr. Aiken was in attendance, the priest got a little squirrely in his theology, Uh-oh. and he he made a statement about um, Christ's divine knowledge. That was actually false. It was not. It was not what the church teaches. Okay. And um, and Jimmy Aiken was wondering how. What can I do here that can correct this error? And so when it came time for the prayer of the faithful, he stood up at mass and said, um, uh, "We give thanks that Jesus always knew that he was divine," which refuted the particular error that was being enunciated. And of course, the Funny. whole church says, "Lord, hear our prayers." Oh, so that's he great. Uses an opportunity to. Do a little catechism <laughs> there. I thought that was a funny story. Good stuff. But no, there's nothing preventing it. And that's why some some parishes, most parishes, in fact, don't make that a regular part of the prayer mm, of the faithful, yeah. I suspect. And, yeah. and there are specific guidelines for how the prayer of the faithful is to be composed. And uh, and it's supposed to be general intercessions for, you know, things of interest to the common good, like the welfare of states and you know mm-hmm. having good leaders and peace in the world and that sort of thing. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Ashley watching us today on YouTube. Hello, Ashley. Ashley says, if the priest, this is in the Mass, if the priest has placed the host back in the tabernacle and sits down, but the deacon is still performing purification of the vessels, should the laity remain kneeling? Um, yeah, thanks. So um, I don't have a copy of the ritual open in front of me, so I can't actually read the rubric. So I'm yeah. kind of doing this off the, the seat of my pants or perhaps from the from the knees of my pants. That would be a better way of putting it. You know, <laughs> my, my practice personally is to remain kneeling until the, the purification of the vessels has been completed. And the reason that you kneel during the purification of the vessels, the reason you purify the vessels is on the supposition that particles of the, of the consecrated species may remain. And if they do remain, then we're talking about the real presence of Christ that demands our reverence. Mm-hmm. I can remember it just, it was last week at the mass at our church that exactly happened uh, the priest finished, uh, sat down, but there were still altar servers still doing their thing. And I, I happened to look around. Some people remained kneeling. Some people took the opportunity to sit. Right, right. So there, there it is. All right, uh, let us go to this question here from, um, looks like Tom. Hello, why aren't the dogmas and doctrines that are so central to Catholicism, such as the real presence, Marian devotions, purgatory, confession to a priest, etc. Why aren't these given more than a passing and somewhat ambiguous reference in Scripture? Many themes of Scripture, loving your neighbor, humility, the Ten Commandments, and others, repeat through the words of Jesus, the epistles, and even the Old Testament for some of them. So why such oblique references to the beliefs that Catholic Catholics hold as foundational? Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Several things to say here. One, as you were giving your litany of Catholic beliefs held central, you mentioned one that, um, remember in Sesame Street, they used to give you a series of items and you had to identify the one that didn't belong? Yeah. You know, and, you know, the count and other people would make that out. There was one that didn't belong in your list. Okay. Ah, uh, you ranked Marian devotion yes. in there with 
the Trinity and the Incarnation and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So we wouldn't say that. What we would say is there's Marian dogma that's central to the Church's identity, but Marian devotion is something different from Marian dogma. The, the forms of reverence that we take towards the Blessed Virgin are are variable and 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 culturally in context uh you know specific the dogmas are universal so we distinguish between the dogma about the blessed virgin and the devotions which are not as important um in terms of the question why aren't they well according to you well represented in scripture well first of all where do you think catholics got them from yeah. we, we did not make them up we did not make them up and and there's scriptural warrant for all of them but there is a there's a, a an assumption in your question that I think is very problematic, and and that is that Scripture exists to give us a limpid, clear, comprehensive account of the things that are to be believed and done by by Christians, and and maybe a definitive account. Uh-huh. That's not what Catholics think the Bible is. The Bible has a different function. Uh, St. Paul says that Scripture was given to us by inspiration so that the man of God could be equipped for every good work. So it it has a specific—it's formation more than it is information, you see. And that's the way it's used in the life of the Christian faithful. But when when you actually have to specify, well, what is it that Catholics actually believe— well, scripture informs that answer, but it's not the only answer. And we, the the church has sort of solidified the uh, sort of the main beliefs about God and redemption in the form of the creed, um, precisely to give clarity to what is often implicit in the Bible. But in terms of the Bible's function, it does what it was designed by God to do, which is equip the man of God for every good work, not to give a comprehensive, definitive account of Christian dogma. Tom, thanks so much for your email. Let's go to John now, listening on the great JMJ Radio in Pennsylvania. Hello, John. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I uh, wonder if Dr. Andrews has uh, any information about what happened to Desjardins, uh, the French paleontologist's uh, uh concepts and, and how they stood with the, I know how they stood with the Magisterium way back, or at least the, uh, you know, the Church itself, there was some question about whether his his material, this is way back when they had the index, might be put on the index. I wonder where all that is or where it went. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So we had this question uh, just the other day, actually. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's interesting that this come up twice. Um, Deschardins was, uh, uh, the Holy Office kind of marked him out as uh, suspicious in the early 60s. And to contextualize that, all you had to do was sneeze in the wrong direction (laughs) before the Second Vatican Council, and the Holy Office would put you on the list. So there are a number of people that got, as it were, put on the list in the 40s and 50s um, who were later not only rehabilitated, but um, but really elevated. So, uh, you know, for example, um, Henri de Lubac would be an example of he was uh, Pius XII actually wrote an encyclical that many people think was an attack on some of de Lubac's ideas, and then John Paul II uh, made him a cardinal, and the the Conference of French Bishops is currently pushing for his canonization. Oh. You know, I mean, so like he's definitely been rehabilitated. Um, M. D. Chenu, uh, Dominican theologian, was he was put on the list. 
um, for a book he wrote about Thomas Aquinas that today would be regarded as utterly uncontroversial. Um, and I could I could kind of just go down the list and give you more examples of people getting, quote-unquote, put on the list who, who later got rehabilitated. And part of that had to do with the culture of the time, the uh, the uh, uh, the church's rather aggressive uh, approach to modernism was still very much top of mind, and there was a kind of paranoia about uh, um, things, th- systems of thought that would assail the, the citadel of Thomism that was understood to be the church's um, sort of main philosophical and theological approach. And uh, what happened is that I think uh, cooler heads prevailed and realized that Thomism, great as it is, and I'm highly sympathetic to St. Thomas, is uh, is not the only allowable philosophical position, and and that um, uh, allowing a sort of greater liberty of thought on you know things like modern science and modern biblical criticism is not uh, is not a threat to faith, and and um, some of the very same people that were on the list, uh, you know, were um, like I said later rehabilitated. Now Duchardin falls into that category. So there's actually been a recommendation um, by uh, papal theologians to officially take him off the list, but whether he is or isn't, uh, uh, both, well, John Paul II, no, Paul VI, John Paul II, uh, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis have all had very nice things to say about Chardin in public uh, and have cited him, right? So he's, uh, in practice, when you've got, like, all but one of the last popes since Paul VI, <laughs> publicly citing him with approbation, that, that pretty much accounts for, uh, for rehabilitation. John, a great call. Thanks for listening to us uh, via the great JMJ Radio in Pennsylvania. Appreciate your call. No, I do want to say, um, for people who might be listening, don't really know how the magisterium works or how Catholic theology works, the fact that you cite somebody uh-huh. does not mean that everything they say is right. All right. So a person can be influential, they can have interesting things to say, they can be insightful, and still be wrong on a lot of issues. Sure. Right? And, um, and, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't necessarily amount to a wholesale endorsement of everything to Sheldon, every thought. When the Church wants to do that, they make someone a doctor of the Church. Mm. Right, and I don't think we're we're not any danger of having him be made a doctor. Called to communion here on EWTN. Uh, got just a just a line or two open available for you at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Talking about great, I'm thinking about Women of Grace with uh, John Ed Williams. A wonderful program we've been bringing to you for many years here on EWTN, and it just gets better. Join us for Women of Grace tomorrow morning at eleven. 11 a.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. All right, we're going now to uh, Jim, listening in Springfield, Missouri, uh, on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Jim. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey. Hi, everybody. Hey, so I'm attracted to the Catholic Church, mainly because of the apostolic succession portion of it. Uh But what really has turned me off, and I, I don't understand why this would ever be allowed to happen, was the the uh, priest and child sex abuse thing. Why would the church leadership not be the first one to jump on the bandwagon and get rid of those people, those priests that uh, did that kind of stuff? Why did they cover it up? It seems demonic to me in, in a way. Yeah, it seems demonic to me too. Yep. And I, I'm yep. a Catholic and I find it, like, to say I find it distasteful would be a massive understatement. I find it repulsive and horrid and, and, and turns my stomach and I hate it. So I'm totally with you there, and I do think it's demonic. 
Um, as to why it happened, that's a little bit more complex. But I, I do think it's important to put this in context. And the, the awareness of sexual abuse as an offense against human dignity and the fact that it's a social issue and how you should handle it is something where there has been a cultural evolution, not only within Catholicism, but across institutions. So, you know, take an example. It's just very personal. I went to an independent private school in Birmingham, Alabama, south of town in Shelby County. And uh, nothing religious about the school had no sectarian affiliation, and in fact, it it you know had we had Jewish kids, Christian kids, Muslim kids, Hindu kids, you know, atheist kids, and yeah. it was just it was just an independent private school, uh, and a boarding school too, for that matter. And um, when I was in my late forties, early fifties, the administration undertook a kind of investigation about whether anything uh, improper had ever taken place at the school, and they solicited input from alumni and my input as well. And I had my two cents put in and so did a lot of other people. And the long and the short of it was that they hired an outside firm that did an investigation and came to find out that a great number of the faculty who'd been on staff when I was there, and I'm talking, I'm just top of, top of my head, like it was four or five faculty members in a school where my graduating class was 50 people. Wow. So it's a pretty high percentage. Yeah, um, Had, you know, where actively soliciting sex from students or doing other really, really, really grotesquely inappropriate things. Um, and, of course, we've seen the same thing emerge out of, say, you know, the Boy Scout organization and lots of other religious denominations. And there was a study by Carol Shakeshaft of Hofstra University that uh, looked at uh, the uh, public school system in one of the U.S. 50 states. And I'll just... I'll I'll give you a hint. It was much farther west than Alabama. Got it. About as far west as you can go. Okay. okay? And um, found out that the rate of child sex abuse in that institution was uh, ten times that that you would have in the in the Catholic Church. And that doesn't excuse what happened in the Catholic Church at all. It does show that this is a pervasive human problem, and it goes back really to the dawn of time. And when you you know, study ancient history, you find out that not only did they not have a problem with it, but they celebrated it in literature, right? And it was called pederasty in ancient Greece, and they thought it was a great thing. So it's been part of human culture forever. Our consciousness of it is a grave offense against human dignity and a social problem that needs to be addressed at the institutional level is something that I think is is really part of modern consciousness. Now, in terms of why the Church did what it did, I think personally— that there was a great deal of naivete on the part of uh, members of the church hierarchy about um, the 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 important role that one's natural psychology plays in the question of moral culpability. Right. So there is a an error that uh, the French philosopher Pierre Hadot uh, characterizes as supernaturalism as opposed to naturalism, hmm. and he views that as the as the belief that 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 supernatural influence like great grace um, will automatically uh, sort of overwhelm whatever corruption there is in nature such that you don't have to worry about nature, right? That you don't have to attend to things like, you know, the pervasive tendencies of a, of a demented psychology because, hey, grace will solve the problem. And, mm. you know, if somebody, well, you know, you go go to penance and go to confession and go to mass and say your rosary and God will help you with this problem. And there maybe was an overly optimistic conception of, uh, of 
the ability of the church to rehabilitate people. And, and we do know that was part of it. They, people, yeah. Well, I'd get this guy some training, make sure he's working with the spiritual director and he won't offend again. That was part of the problem. Um, another part of the problem was a, uh, a real misunderstanding about how best to serve the interests of the faithful and the good of the church. So there was an attitude, I, I know this for a fact, that, well, if, if this comes out into the open, it's going to scandalize people and they'll lose their faith. And so we don't want that to happen. So you know, better we keep it on the down low, keep the dirty laundry inside for the sake of tender consciences. Now, that turned out to be exactly the wrong strategy, right? But uh, out of a misplaced sense of the church's dignity and a misplaced understanding of how best to serve the interests of tender consciences led to a really terrible policy decision that had exactly the opposite effect. Okay. Then there's backfire. A, yeah, a backfire. Yeah, backfire. Then there's a third reason, which is that some of the bishops were baddie bads, meaning that they themselves were guilty of the offenses that they were covering up. Yeah. And that's just a matter of human perversion and sin, and, and you know, those people will, uh, you know, quite possibly go to hell for their crimes, right? So you had a lot of human elements in there, some, some bad judgment, uh, some, some sinful action, and, uh, and some theological errors about the way grace and nature interact. And all that in the early 2000s, all that uh, at kind of the height of all this that we're talking about, this horrible situation, all that did not stop you from becoming a Catholic. No, no, I, I became Catholic right in the midst and on the heels of all the revelations that came out of Boston, and it really didn't deter me for a second. And the reason it didn't was that I knew perfectly well that corruption in the Church is something that dated back to the time of the Apostles, uh, has been part of the Church's constitution for 2,000 years, and my motive for becoming Catholic was to receive Christ in the sacraments and to fellowship with the saints who had been perfected in holiness, not um, not to uh, not to chase after the sinners that I wanted nothing to do with. So this was um, the opposite of that Billy Joel song. You remember that one? Which one? <laughs> the one where he sings, "It's better to laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints." Yes. And I know it's better to laugh with the saints than cry with the sinners. There you go. That was my philosophy. Another way to look at it there, Jim. Thank you so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Joe is listening online, EWTN.com in Pennsylvania. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon. I, I, I go to church. I'm a daily communicant. And, but yesterday's reading just really, really, really troubled me. Uh, you know, First Samuel 2 and, and then Mark 6, uh, where the Lord, I mean, get, keep it short, the Lord regretted what he did in David, uh, with David, and he was amazed at the lack of faith uh, in Mark. I mean, how can the Lord be regret things he does and be amazed? Does he knows everything? Yeah, thanks. So the Catholic position on this, definitively, no ambiguity about this at all, is that God does not regret things. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't get sorry. He doesn't even have emotions. And we recognize that Scripture says differently— and so I am telling you that the Catholic dogma is something other than what the literal sense of the Bible would seem to indicate, which underscores the fact that Catholics don't take the Bible purely literally. That is to say, we don't read the Bible in its plain denotative sense as the man on the street would understand it. Um, the Bible needs to be understood in a very nuanced fashion, in light of the whole, governed ultimately by the person of Jesus, who is the hermeneutical key to the entire thing, 
and honestly to a philosophical concept of God that, uh, that reason can have some access to. And we don't think God changes. We don't think he regrets. Uh, we don't think he has human emotions. And so we regard these kinds of texts as a kind of a condescension to, uh, to a human point of view. Scripture is written in human language, in literary forms and genres that are adapted to their particular purposes. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so in a passage like this, when we talk about God regretting, we're really we're talking about you know, the capacity of men to be alienated from God. That, that's the message that we take out of there, but not a metaphysical truth claim about the nature of the divine essence. Joe, thanks so much for your call. We have just enough time for Jesse in Ohio listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hey, Jesse, we've got about a minute here. What's on your mind today? Yeah, if I wasn't a Protestant and wasn't a Catholic and I wasn't an atheist, somebody broke my house, shot me, and I'm bleeding out. And my hell bounders, is there any way I can get to heaven? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So we are united to God by charity, that is to say by love, um, the kind of love that Jesus had for the church, the kind of love that's self-sacrificial, the kind of love that puts uh, my, myself, my body, my life at the service of my neighbor and involves all of the, all of the virtues. So, so if, I have, if I have charity and the virtues in my life, if I love God and love neighbor, then I'm united to God who is charity and I'll go to heaven when I die. Um, so the the accoutrements, if you will, of Catholic faith, the you know the the elements of the creed, the life of the sacraments, the life of the Christian faithful, are bare, there basically for one purpose, and that is to move me to that life of faith in the virtues. But if God were to grant me the gift of faith of, of charity in the virtues, apart from explicitly belonging to the Catholic faith, I could still go to heaven. And the teaching of the Church is that He does that, right? That that some people get to heaven without explicit faith in Jesus. Oh, there you go. Jesse, thanks so much for your call from Ohio. Glad that you uh, jumped in here at, uh, at the end of the program. Glad we could answer your question. Uh, if I could, for just a moment, uh, earlier in the program we were talking about Lent. EWTN has you covered, whether it's television, radio, the National Catholic Register, EWTN.com. We are all over this holy season of Lent. We'll be bringing you programs on the radio, on television, on the web. Do check it out. EWTN.com is your one-stop Lenten connection. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. You can check out the podcast anytime you wish by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Then uh, look for those words, Podcast Central. Scroll down and you'll find Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Tom Price. Have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll see you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.